You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash mission log and get on your way to being your best self. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mission log. This episode is also sponsored by Master Replicas. Find the largest collection of rare Starship models from your favorite franchises like Doctor Who, Alien, Stargate, and of course, Star Trek at MasterReplicas.com. Be the first to know about exclusive drops at MasterReplicas.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 520, The Omega Directive. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, our directive is to review an episode of Star Trek from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega, to see if the episode withstands the test of time, and perhaps, in a moment of clarity, find any morals, meanings, or messages contained therein. This week, the Omega Directive, the one where Janeway is forced to play Starfleet's ultra-top-secret directive, sort of, over the Prime Directive, while also having yet another showdown with Seven of Nine. John will be back with trivia in a moment, right after I tell you how to stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at rottenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. Hey, I promise I will have that trivia for you in a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsor, Master Replicas. We are so happy to have Master Replicas because you may remember our deep love for teeny tiny starships. Yes, well, Master Replicas have an incredibly extensive collection of ships that you may remember from... Eagle Moss, yes, Master Replicas have absorbed that inventory. And you know, in Star Trek alone, there's something like 400 unique model ships. Yes, that, that is a remarkable number. It's more than practically any other franchise. I mean, what other series has more than 400 ships? Uh, but don't worry. Master Replicas has more than just Star Trek. Oh, no, no, no. They, they've got ships from your favorite uh, stories like Alien and Stargate and Doctor Who and so much more. Now, here's a fun story. I've just recently picked up two different ships with the same name that were not previously in their inventory, but now they are. Whoa, really? Mm-hmm. I yes, I have. know that. Okay. The Prometheus from Stargate and the Prometheus from... Voyager. Yes, so, nicely yeah. done. Nicely done. The reason why I say this is because here's the important detail about these ships. We all love them. We all love mm-hmm. them because they represent our fandom. But many of you may or may not know that they're not being made anymore. So Master Replicas, they've been able to like procure all the old stock, and now they're selling it off. That's how I was able to get the Prometheus's. I guess Promethei. <laughs> Promethei. <laughs> <laughs> They've got most things, but if you want to get any, say, of like the Enterprises or Voyager or the Defiant or something more obscure, like the Prometheus, now's mm-hmm. the time. We're not sure if you'll be able to get them in the future, at least not at these prices, because 
when they kind of went out, they started becoming really, really, really just ridiculously exorbitantly priced on eBay. So you don't want that to happen to you. There are ships there sometimes for more than $1,000, but Master Replicas are now selling them for close to the original prices. And look, you already know about the quality and the detail in those tiny starships. Norman, I'm sure that yours are beautiful, both Prometheus. Yes. Love them. Uh, They're just so good because, you know, whenever possible, uh, they were actually made using the original CG models that were used to make the visual effects for the show. Master Replicas have only got the rights to sell these for a certain amount of time. How long, you may ask? Well, Stick with us because we'll update you right here in the show. In the meantime, don't delay. Go to masterreplicas.com. Tell them Mission Log sent you when you place your first order. Sign up for that newsletter, too, so you can be the first to know about special promotions and exclusive drops. That address, again, is masterreplicas.com. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. Yeah, see, I promised I would be back. All right, the Omega Directive. We have a story by Jimmy Diggs and Steve J.K. And Jimmy's name you probably remember since he is a person of many talents with a varied resume. He's a veteran. Uh, He worked in the airline industry. He was in the Navy as well. And he also took to writing and production, and he pitched a number of stories to Star Trek, getting his break in Voyager's second season with Elogium, along with Steve J.K., While that story and this one are Steve's only credits in the business, Jimmy carried on with more for Star Trek, racking up a total of six for Voyager and the DS9 standout, Dr. Bashir, I presume. Now, Lisa Klink gets the credit here for shaping the pitch from Jimmy and Steve into a teleplay. As always, there is influence from others on the production team, though, and Brandon Braga chimed in about his preference to shift the script's focus and lean more towards Seven of Nine's experience rather than staying completely focused on the Omega Particle itself. This was directed by Victor Lobel, and we just mentioned Victor a couple of weeks ago with The Killing Game. He directed part two of that episode. And by the way, due to typo, I think I mispronounced his last name as Lobi or Lobi. And I, you know what? We'll just, we'll not do that again. Um, by the time of the Omega Directive, uh, Victor was actually done with his work on Voyager, but he still had one more gig over at DS9 where he wrapped up his Trek directing with the episode Prodigal Daughter. Let's say hello to our guest star as well. Uh, we should all feel very honored that we do have a visit from an old friend who should have top billing, and that would be the space station model that has been making appearances in Star Trek since the motion picture. Uh, this station has got a great agent and always turns in a top-notch performance. And we uh, we also get to meet a couple of aliens, the ones who survive, at least, who have an interest in the Omega Particle. There's a captain played by Kevin McCorkle, and this is Kevin's only Trek appearance, but he's been busy as an actor since the mid-'70s, jumping from soap operas to sitcoms to feature films. He turns up in The Amazing Spider-Man, The Island, all the way to General Hospital and The Young and the Restless. And finally, Alos, played by Jeff Austin. Jeff has been around Star Trek before. You need to go back to DS9's third season episode, The Adversary, or The Adversary, and look for the Bolian, and you will be seeing Jeff. He's got a long list of genre guest credits, like The X-Files and a couple of iterations of Alien Nation. This episode of Voyager is his last Trek credit thus far. 
Warning, a top secret thing is happening, and I'm telling everyone about it, secretly. Prologue. Seven of Nine wakes from her regeneration cycle and engages her personal log to record her expected schedule for the day, beginning with a morning sensor array diagnostic inspection with Harry, who she finds playing Kalto with Tuvok. She abruptly finishes Harry's game for him with one move so they can return to their scheduled morning maintenance. However, on their way to work, they are interrupted by Voyager being shaken. But by what? On the bridge, all monitors are overtaken by a single large Greek letter, Omega, to be exact. All controls are locked out, and Chakotay is about to take corrective action just as Janeway appears. In one deft series of actions, she frees Voyager from the lockouts, orders all bridge crew to maintain silence about what they just saw, and disappears into her ready room with only a simple, I'll have further instructions for you soon, as the doors close. Act 1. Janeway secures and locks down her office, then accesses the Omega alert status on her monitor. Her expression confirms her worst fear. Voyager sensors have detected the Omega phenomenon, which, in terms of Starfleet mission parameters, supersede and rescind any current activities for any Starfleet captain and Starfleet vessel to immediately engage this threat. And the severity of these parameters even supersede the Prime Directive. In engineering, Chakotay relays the captain's orders, vague as they may be. However, due to the sheer manpower needed to address specific engineering needs for radiation-proofing Voyager's warp core and thermally reinforcing Tom's shuttle, Belana is curious about this rumor. Something about an Omega Directive, which captures Seven's attention immediately. Chakotay tells her that the captain wants to see her immediately, and Seven knows why. When Seven meets with Janeway in her ready room, they both know that the Borg were and are aware of the Omega Molecule, classified knowledge that was assimilated by the Borg after assimilating several Starfleet captains. Janeway tells Seven that Starfleet's mission is to destroy it. Seven believes its potential can be captured and harnessed and explains that the Borg, after sacrificing 600,000 drones and 29 ships in the process, were able to just barely stabilize one molecule, but it can be done. And after another tense standoff between them, Seven yields to Janeway's mission parameters and agrees to help her hunt down the molecule. Act 2. In sickbay, Janeway orders the doctor to provide her with hyposprays of erythrazine, which he states is used for the most severe cases of radiation poisoning. She demands it to be provided and is willing to pull rank on him if he doesn't. The doctor abides and knows her rashness is prompted by this Omega Directive. He expresses his concern, but Janeway is already focused on the next task, which is reconvening with Seven of Nine at her station in Cargo Bay 2, away from prying eyes. Janeway is astonished by Seven's research, specifically the Borg's calculations to harness Omega. But Janeway orders Seven to backburner her side project and transfer all data about destroying Omega to Astrometrics. Meanwhile, Harry and Tuvok are following Janeway's clandestine orders to modify a photon torpedo with a specific warhead, atypical to Federation safety specs as noted by Harry. Rumor has it that the captain is going to use the weapon to seal fluidic space once and for all. Harry believes that Janeway will fire on a Type 6 protostar, which will create a wormhole for them to get home. Either way, after Janeway interrupts them and orders Tuvok to increase the explosive yield, he suggests to Harry that idle speculation is doing them no good and to focus on completing their task. Later in the Astrometrics lab, 
Chakotay finally confronts Janeway about the details of the plan she set in motion. He believes that she is acting in the extreme and isolating himself from the crew, and especially from those, like himself, who know her best and know that she is trying to shoulder the responsibility of the Omega Directive all on her own. But he implores her to let her crew, her found family, help her share the burden because they are on their own in the Delta Quadrant with no Starfleet backup and have to depend on each other, as he explains to her that they have done time and time again. Convinced that Chakotay is right, Janeway meets with her command staff and explains to them exactly why the Omega Molecule is so dangerous. Omega was an experiment that went horribly wrong, and a Starfleet scientist named Cataract is to blame. The molecule destroys subspace, and if left to run rampant, could destabilize any galactic quadrant from ever using warp speed as a means of travel again. Tom corroborates this after remembering the Lantaru sector was untraversable for strange reasons. Omega was the reason. It destroyed subspace in that space sector. Pre-warp civilizations would suffer the same fate as the Lantaru sector, which would change their evolutionary trajectory and destroy the credibility of Starfleet's Prime Directive for all time. It is because of these reasons that the Omega Directive was hard-coded into each starship so that it would be confronted immediately wherever the molecule is detected, above any and all standing directives at the time, no matter what, even the Prime Directive. And with that, the crew prepares themselves for what is to come. Act 3. Voyager is en route to the system where they believe Omega's subspace tremor originated. While on approach, Janeway returns to Cargo Bay 2 for an update on Seven's containment project, a harmonics resonance chamber that the Borg believed can stabilize Omega. Janeway pushes Seven for more of her personal truth about why she and the Borg were so interested in the molecule. Seven believes Omega to represent technological perfection, and the Borg assimilated 13 species each with their own description of Omega as part of their respective creation mythologies. Janeway even offers up the theory that it may have been Omega that was at the heart of the Big Bang that created the known universe. However, their speculation is sidelined by Janeway's summons to the bridge. Seven needs the combined resources of the ship and personnel to finish her chamber, and Janeway approves whatever resources she needs. As they navigate the already corrupted subspace eddies and currents of Omega's devastation, Voyager's sensors hone in on a moon, and what appears to be the remains of a pre-warp civilization and its base, which is rife with Omega particles. That base is ground zero for the Omega Directive's specific parameters to discover why and what happened, and to destroy the source of the molecule and all possible means of its dispersal. That Starfleet for... Nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Upon beaming to the facility, Janeway Tuvok and her away team triage the situation quickly and expertly. They find a survivor with knowledge of the failed experiment and beam him to Voyager for treatment. Back in Cargo Bay 2, much to Harry's chagrin, Seven has created a mini-collective in order to streamline the efficiency of finishing the harmonics chamber. Soon after, she barges into sickbay and through the doctor's objections to interrogate the alien scientist who was in charge of creating the new Omega Molecules. He provides her with information vital to the success of her chamber's efficiency. Act 4. Tuvok and another engineering tech finally cut through the research chamber armored door. And with a little elbow grease, Janeway and Tuvok manage to pry away the exterior shielding to reveal a bright blue glow emanating through a protective field where the Omega molecules are currently trapped. 
Without hesitation, Janeway's training kicks in as she searches for the most effective way to destroy the molecules, as per her directive. And remember, Tuvok, even though you're reminded your captain, Omega supersedes and rescinds all other directives, including the Prime Directive. While Janeway is preparing to execute her directive's orders, Chakotay checks in on Seven, who is still not convinced that destroying Omega is the right course of action. Chakotay countermands her objection, citing that she has been ordered to finalize her captain's directive as per Starfleet's mandate. Seven uncharacteristically pleads with Chakotay to let her use the information she recently gathered from the recovering scientist to modify the residence chamber and preserve what she can, only to describe to Chakotay as something so flawless that it would be akin to a spiritual moment. Understanding the gravity of her request, Chakotay sympathizes with her plea, but ultimately secures her cooperation to complete Janeway's assignment as ordered. While Janeway and the away team are finalizing the safest way to transport the molecules out of the research containment chamber, and while Seven is finalizing the adjustments to her harmonics chamber, two alien ships are on an intercept course. Tom has to risk descending closer to the planet's surface in order for Harry to establish a transporter lock on the molecules through a sea of radiation interference. However, if the transport is unstable, the molecules could destabilize and destroy subspace in a majority of the sector. But the Voyager crew is able to overcome all obstacles and safely contain all of the molecules just in time to put some distance between them and their pursuers. Act 5 with hundreds of Omega molecules contained in Seven's protective chamber, it's time for Janeway to finish her mission's objective to rid the quadrant of Omega once and for all. The plan, to disperse the molecules in a region of inhabited space and detonate them, destroying them forever. The subspace in that region would be ruined, but there's no risk of violating the Prime Directive since that region contains no warp-capable civilizations. As Voyager is en route to their final destination, Chakotay tells Janeway that Seven still believes she can harness Omega, to which Janeway immediately heads for Cargo Bay 2 to set Seven straight and for her to abide by Janeway's orders. When Janeway finally confronts Seven, she gives her an ultimatum, destroy Omega as ordered, or Janeway will. Seven protests for the last time and eventually chooses to assist Janeway. They attempt to destroy more molecules faster, but Seven believes if they push the chamber's containment field any further, it would risk rupturing. Janeway believes that they have destroyed enough in the chamber itself to safely jettison the rest and ignite them with the modified gravimetric torpedoes. But right before Seven releases the molecules, for a brief moment, she watches them reach a state of perfect harmony. Chakotay opens fire with a volley of the modified ordnance still being pursued by the alien spacecraft whose captains accuse Janeway of stealing their technology, they are caught in the wake of the molecule's destruction only to watch Voyager warp safely away from the rupture of local subspace. Omega is destroyed, and thus so are Janeway's secret files of said directive. Later in Janeway's Da Vinci holodeck program, the captain finds Seven there, lost in thought, surrounded by religious iconography. Seven relents and finally confides in Janeway, confessing that in the 3.2 seconds of observing Omega come together in perfect harmony, that perhaps there is something to this moment of clarity, to which Janeway tells Seven she may have had her first spiritual experience. The End 
All right, nicely done, Norman. Uh, as we get started here, I like the little day in the life blog. I guess that we get from Seven. I mean, it's sort of it's fun and it's in character because it's so dry, and she takes her little digs at other characters, which is fun. But it is, I think, it's a little weird that it is a preemptive blog rather than reflecting on what already happened. Usually, when you keep a diary, keep a diary about the things that you did. You, you don't mm-hmm. start the diary by saying, today I've scheduled this, and then, you just, and then just go on to the next thing. I think that's kind of like so in line with Seven, though. Like, this is how my day is going to be. I guess so. Why would it change? Yeah, you know? <laughs> and if there's any variation at all, then, then it's really worth noting. A fun little moment with the Kalto game. Here's my running checklist of let's uh, cast Shade at Harry from the start. Oh, God. Let's say let's check mark one. Yeah. Let's emasculate Harry even further by finishing his overnight Calto game for him. Uh huh. And you knew it was coming. Right. You knew it was coming in that just in that one move. And yeah, right. Totally mess with Harry. Yeah, yeah. Seven says I was Borg, and I wondered if this is a new-ish thing that we have heard from her because in the past she's a sort of. I, we've heard her refer to herself as being Borg, uh, but mm-hmm. is this a new thing to say, I was Borg? If you had asked her the follow-up question, what are you now, would she say human? Tense is very important. Yeah, it is. It you is, know? yeah. And by the way, we, we get back to this question that I had raised before, that the Borg, you know, they sort of process some but not all the information they assimilate, apparently. They kind of leave out things that are extraneous, but if it's important enough that a Starfleet captain knows that they're going to hang on to it, but then how does that information get down to the individual Borg like Seven of Nine? Does that mean that that information exists in all Borg all the time? So there's not really a great deal of detail on how Seven in particular has retained all of that, but yeah, it helps the story. You know what we call this, John, in yeah. business? What's that? We call this the best of both worlds. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how appropriate. So, yeah. You know, just saying. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it was interesting to me that they interrupt all ship functions with a giant Omega. First of all, because that could be a problem. And second of all, it's secret, but we'll put it on all the displays. They obviously didn't talk to Dean Warmer about double secret probation. Oh, right. You know, that's, <laughs> yes. that's more secret than this, yeah. right? Again, for something so secret, it's probably not a good idea to broadcast it on every single bridge screen. I mean, yeah. isn't this something that would maybe, I don't know, go directly to the captain's comm badge? You would think, <laughs> because the comm badge knows yeah. where the captain is. Just put it on the monitor right in front of the captain. Oh, you make so and, much and sense. Don't how, how you. You. And don't stop what you're doing. Don't stop what you're doing in the meantime. I know. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it, we have the first of what I think are a lot of very weird moments. Uh, you have Balana questioning the top secret orders. Then others do. Aren't they all part of the Starfleet team here? Would it be different if they were all in the Alpha Quadrant? I, I, of course, these are questions that come up <laughs> during the show itself. But, you know, if they were in the Alpha Quadrant, they, hey, there's a top secret thing. Okay, I guess we're doing the top secret thing. But are they all feeling a little more relaxed because, oh, we're in the Delta Quadrant. Who's going to notice? I know it's kind of like like what part of need to know, quote unquote, do yeah, you not understand exactly. you know, when you're asking these questions. But then again, if they were in the Alpha Quadrant, you know, especially, you know, uh, Bellana being Maquis and Tom being kind of like pseudo Maquis, yeah. they wouldn't have been on that ship to begin oh, with. Oh, so, good point. You know, good point. Maybe it's there. I'm Maquis, so I can, you know, I can be that way. Yeah. I'm not Starfleet. Yeah. You know, so I just don't follow orders blindly. Right. You know, that could be. 
So Seven mentions the Borg using boronite ore in the process to harness Omega. So is this a chicken or the egg thing? Does processing boronite create the Omega particle or... Is it a byproduct of using boronite for something else? You are doing the thing that drove me crazy during this, which is asking scientific, logical questions like what precedes what <laughs> throughout this episode. And that that became uh, an exercise in futility. Uh, How dare I? Yeah. <laughs> and now, okay, so Janeway just trusts Seven will cooperate now, even because we went from I will not comply to, okay, I'll do what you want in a matter of a few seconds, e even though Seven says, like, yeah, I'm not going to comply. Has Janeway not learned any lessons here? Yeah, that's interesting, right? It's a case-by-case -case basis. I guess so. And my answer is so diplomatic, so we're going to move to the next Okay. <laughs> uh, so if uh, Seven has all the collective knowledge of the board. Yeah. Why doesn't she understand Janeway's reference to Omega being the Borg's Holy Grail? You would think that a metaphor like the Holy Grail would have come up, of course. Considering it, that, you know, um, she she made mention of, and I'm going to jump all the way to kind of like the end of the episode where she understands religious mythology of, you know, the, the creation story of other cultures. Right. But she didn't know what World War II was. <laughs> right. The knowledge travels right. at the speed of plot. Yeah. And also the doctor should just... He should know better now to just don't argue with Janeway if she's saying she's going to do something dangerous. Because like I could just stop you. You can't do that. She, you already got a dressing down for interrupting her. Don't do that again. Uh, I'm wondering, does the doctor know about the Omega Directive because he can access the computer's database? Or did he hear about it through the gossip? Right yeah, well, either one of those totally probable and possible. I mean, I, I guess as a computer program, he could just be siloed from another part of the computer that has the top secret stuff. And maybe it would be even more difficult for the computer to access its own top secret stuff. But the gossip program, that works in overtime. I, Harry's eagerness to uh, try to sway Tuvok to get a little information, that was just uh, charmingly awful <laughs> you know not, not that the scene was awful it just that harry's failure uh which we knew was coming uh he should know that by now but you know though i do like that there is a little bit of an arc with their characters uh you know they referenced calto uh, and yeah. how they played you know all night and that goes all the way back to that episode where they fell in love with the same girl i like that there's a little bit of yielding from tuvok when he says yes i am curious yeah Right. Right. You know, so it, it, it was nice, you know, albeit, yeah, you know that it's, it's futile. Uh, questioning is futile, Harry. Yeah, uh, so. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and in that scene where Harry and Tuvok are talking to each other, we have one of my favorite dramatic conceits, not just from Star Trek, but from a lot of TV shows. It's the old dramatic. I didn't hear what you were saying because I was out in the corridor, but I answered your question when I walked through the door maneuver that Janeway executes perfectly here. So I heard that's the Mr. Roper maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> this is so good. The Roper maneuver. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, also, I have a tip here for Starfleet. Don't name the directive after the particle <laughs> that you're seeking. So oh this, th this is why historically, if Seven of Nine knew anything about World War II, it might have been helpful. That's why top secret operations have different names. So you name things like Operation Overlord and you don't call it Operation Invade Normandy because then, oh, yeah, I just, th that's free. That's free advice from me. 
how does Chakotay know that Janeway has taken this too far, in, in his words? Because he doesn't know anything. He feels it. Right? <laughs> he feels it. He, he cons- feels her resolution. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Janeway says to Chakotay, this directive was issued many years ago, and Starfleet didn't exactly have our predicament in mind. Mm. Lost in the Delta Quadrant with no backup. I can't ignore the orders, but I won't ask the crew to risk their lives because of my obligation. Mm. Does this also include the several times that she's threatened to blow up the ship on their behalf as well? Oh, yeah, well, Starfleet doesn't know about that yet. (laughs) But Mm. yeah, she's going to protect her crew until she has to blow up the ship and sacrifice right. every single one of them. Um, I, I get the solidarity expressed in this scene that ends uh, Act 2, uh, the, the sort of we're all in this together feeling. But man, Chakotay, just stop, stop pushing because it really just sounds like you're angling for top secret information, which you are. And then, then we go to uh, a, a nice, you know, I like the historic reference alongside the fictional reference. Einstein with the atomic bomb and Dr. Marcus with the Genesis device. Clever little thing there with a, you know, a scientific breakthrough that then can become a weapon. Can I ask you a question, though? About yeah, that? yeah, please. Well, first of all, I like Oppenheimer, aside from Einstein, came mm-hmm. to mind for me. Yeah. But did you get more excited hearing Einstein or Carol Marcus? Yeah, Carol Marcus. Uh, <laughs> Carol yeah, Marcus. Yeah, Let's be yeah, honest, right? I did. I did. I got to admit. And between yeah, seeing right? that and seeing regular one in the or yep. the, the station, and that what I mean, not named regular yeah. one, but the model. Yeah, um, absolutely loved it. Yeah. Uh, then there's that scene with Janeway and Seven in the cargo bay, like dancing behind this computer while uh, Seven says that she's working on this containment field. The blocking is just so awkward there. I mean, don't their monitors contain multiple windows at the same time, you would think? Because Seven and Janeway, they keep working and they just keep swapping places from one display to another. That drove me insane the more I watched it. I guess it's kind of like in the uh, dynamic of pads, right? Yeah. It's like just one pad per assignment. One display you know, can or, do one thing. Right. Yeah. Seven kind of barks, you know, assist me to Janeway, and Janeway says, I guess I will. I don't understand why Janeway doesn't just, you know, doesn't give her a sideways glance and out of the side of her neck says, please would be nice. I mean, why doesn't anyone do that? I know. Because, right, it drives me crazy. And Seven's got to learn. Apparently, we can scan for one single molecule. That's something that uh, happens in this episode. It was interesting that Jane Way emphasized 13, mm-hmm. right? When it came to the Borg's total assimilated cultures to finally harness Omega. Yeah. I ask you this, John, and I ask all the fans out there. Uh-huh. Does this make the case for calling the Borg's success of this as the birth of the Omega 13? Yep. Mm-hmm. I think you're onto something there. Um, you're welcome. Uh, the explosion on that moon knocked out thousands of kilometers of surface area. But those guys still survived who were right next to it. <laughs> so they they were lucky somehow. Mm-hmm. Also, I wondered, you know, Tuvok makes uh, a real point, And Janeway then makes a real point saying that she is rescinding the prime directive because Tuvok says they're violating the prime directive. And I thought, now? I like, you know, they just they just beam down to a pre-warp society that was blowing itself up and apparently has space yeah. travel anyway, even if they don't have warp travel. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to go by the rules now. Like, who cares, Tuvok? 
And you're accusing me of going into the weeds too early. Yeah, you know. Okay, so, all right. So Janeway says uh, to Seven, I'm leaving this project. This is the harmonic resonance chamber yeah. in your hands. Yeah. Use whatever resources and personnel you need. Seven says, understood. I'm going to delve further into this during discussion because okay. for all of you out there, this is more of a significant scene than many of you may realize. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I would think that Seven definitely knows better than to give people Borg designations. I think she's just messing with them. I think this is her her attempt to just mess with her fellow crew members. So Harry is designated number six of ten. He is not a number. He is a free man. <laughs> he's he's three fifths. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, the third time that Harry is emasculated in this episode for anyone who is keeping score, Ugh, like me. Man, poor Harry. Right? Yeah. I get that Seven is an expert in Omega, but is it good for crew morale to give her command over actual Starfleet crew members? I mean, why isn't an officer assigned to her as oversight? Hmm. Yeah. Good point. Right? Good point. Yeah. And then... Again, this this feeds into this next point. Chakotay says to Harry, when in the collective, Harry, adapt. What a cop outline. I, I am I sorry. Know. Right? Because yeah, Chakotay, come on. You're, you're the first officer here. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I think it would have served him and Harry and maybe the crew, you know, better if he just says, follow orders, semper, you know, sevens in temporary command. Mm-hmm. He had a tough, you know, love leadership moment with Bolanda before. He just basically said, Harry, just do what you're ordered to do. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. On a brighter note, yes. a solid matte painting that opens up Act 4 of the destroyed area. I, lab I area. like that in the best possible yeah. way. It felt like, uh, first of all, a very good Star Trek matte painting, but it felt like one of those yeah. classic uh, Universal Studios, like Buck Rogers, Galactica mm-hmm. era matte paintings. Right. Like, really, really yep. nice. By the way, when we're in that scientific complex, we're dealing with the most dangerous thing in the universe – Let's shoot phasers at it and pry it open with our hands. <laughs> I, I know phasers are weapons. I get that. Yeah. And, and at times they can be used as cutting beams or heating up rocks. Mm-hmm. But for a situation as delicate as, say, not detonating the rest of the Omega molecules in that chamber, oh aren't there, like, more precise engineering tools for this? One would and where's Bolana? Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, funny to answer that question, though. In reality, Roxanne went into labor right after her one scene in this was shot. So, right. yeah. So right. she's not around for the uh, remainder of this episode. That scene where they do open the chamber in that science center, it kind of looks like that scene in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea where they open up the engine room with oh, the Nautilus, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah. Nemo showing how it all works to Professor Aranax. Um, but by the way, uh, Tuvok and Janeway just looking right at it with their naked eyes, as opposed to Nemo, who, who at least has the decency to give them a little face shielding, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, to hide their eyes a little. It is interesting, though, the way that um, I'm going to get to, like, comparing these two scenes in a, in a moment. Mm-hmm. But when Janeway stares at Omega in the chamber yeah. with that, you know, staring into that blue field, she sees a threat, a threat mm-hmm. that needs to be eliminated. So yeah. dot, dot, dot. I'll get to this point in a second. Oh, OK. All right. Yeah. Uh, also, by the way, one of the most unstable, dangerous molecules in the known universe. But you can put it in a transporter. Which I, I also would think means you can replicate it because transporters. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. 
oh. sorry. <laughs> like I, this whole thing, I'm getting whiplash from all the like destroy <laughs> it. No, don't destroy it. It's dangerous. <laughs> Just shoot it. I, you know, there's a lot of back and forth for me there. When Janeway says to Seven, I don't care if you can make it sing and dance. Yeah. We're getting rid of it. This line seems so out of place for Janeway. Mm. Right? It fe- I mean, it felt to me like the writers are, are forcibly making her out to be the bad guy and Seven the good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It is a little strange like that. Lucky for Voyager to outwarp an explosion of the most dangerous thing in the known universe and those alien ships that aren't warp capable i i guess they'll be fine (laughs) you know and will they never be warp capable now that the omega explosion happened in their neighborhood i guess that's the implication there's the dot 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 so when seven stares at omega in the chamber you know this is paralleling what you know janeway did when she saw it down on the planet Mm -hmm. seven sees perfection and I love that they're similarly lit and framed the same way. Yeah. So it's kind of bookending like their experiences with the Omega molecule. Yeah. Like Janeway sees it to be destroyed. Seven sees it to be preserved. I thought that was really nice directed. Yeah, ni- nicely directed. And, and yeah, this nice way to show Janeway kind of not changing her perspective entirely, but able to see something through somebody else's eyes. So mm-hmm. kind of cool. By the way, how... Is Voyager getting these guys back to their home world? Uh, because apparently, you know, they can't warp around there. I don't know. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be a long, long detour. I love Seven's line about uh, Leonardo. He protested, I deactivated him. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it, if that were only the way we could do it in real life. <laughs> so a couple of the questions that I have ending this episode. So Janeway deletes the Omega Directive files at the end. So does this also delete the hard programming in Voyager's sensors. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, what if the Omega molecule appears again? I mean, they could be all are over we to the believe place. That the, yeah. Right. Are we to believe that the aliens created it and not obtained it from the Starfleet Omega molecule? I mean, right. all these things yeah. come into play, yeah. right? Um, by the way, Seven, as we learned uh, in retrospect, has an eidetic memory. So she could, you know, just rebuild what she saw in the containment chamber. I mean, that's... A possibility. I love at the end that, that there's this nice, true tenderness between Seven and Janeway in Da Vinci's parlor. Mm-hmm. And I wish there was more of this uh, that was built up in the last few episodes to see Seven's transformation a bit more gradually. I wonder what other top secret things are programmed into my operating system. Oh, if a giant cow is detected nearby, all my screens display the Greek letter mu. That's good to know. We'll get right back to the Omega Directive after a word from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, John, one of the most, I think, important commodities that we have in our life that we don't pay enough attention to, I think, and we really should, is time. That is the truth. Yeah. Yep. Here's a question that I want to ask you and I want to ask our audience. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Would you take a nap? Would you read a book? Would you spend time with somebody that you care about? What would you do? Oh, my! see, every one of those things sounds great. I, I might need more than an hour, but but given that hour, yeah, taking a nap or 
just reading and being in the moment sounds good to me. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we would do. And a lot of us spend a lot of time about thinking how we can get some of that time back and how we wish we would have more time for ourselves and how we would use it. One of the more important things that we really need to think about from time to time is how we're going to schedule that important time into our lives and make that a priority. And therapy actually can help you find what matters most to you, and you can do more of that. Yes, I've said it before on our show, uh, certainly in the context of our ads from BetterHelp and outside of that too, and uh, certainly in my personal life, said it to others that I have a lot of respect and uh, a lot of admiration for people who decide to get the help that they need. I'm an advocate of therapy. I've been through therapy sessions myself, and uh, I think that there are so many great benefits that come along with that. Sometimes it might be just working through a really difficult time in your life. Certainly therapy is very helpful for that. But try to think broader than that as well. Maybe it's learning from different experiences. Maybe it's learning positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Therapy is all about finding the things that empower you to be the best version of yourself. That could apply to all sorts of situations. It might be personal relationships. It might be work-related. There are any number of issues that could benefit from the, uh, the help that a therapist can give. It's not just about trauma. It really is about all of those day-to-day -day things to help you be your best self. If you happen to be thinking about starting therapy, I would suggest to give BetterHelp a try for many reasons. Uh, first and foremost, it is entirely online and therefore is designed to be convenient and flexible and suited to your schedule. Now, all you have to do is fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MissionLog today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MissionLog. Norman, I'm going to need you and the help of our collective audience to help me parse the multiple levels of secrecy <laughs> in this episode and, and where my loyalty should be, where my understanding should be when it comes to those layers of secrecy. Because yes, yes, we are supposed to be in a future that is free of the petty things that hold us back. And presumably, there is a level of transparency and honesty that goes along with that. And it, it, it seems kind of weird for Starfleet to keep secrets this hard. You know, like th there are some things that come up from time to time. Uh, <coughs> Pegasus, Pegasus. Uh, that, oh. You know, yeah. You go like, okay, well, that was a secret, but there were a lot of people involved and they did a thing and, and it went wrong, you know. But ultimately, that wasn't going to destroy a quadrant of space or end warp drive for everybody. You know, because of things like this, a top secret piece of information may be necessary from time to time, though I would argue that it is much harder to keep things like that a secret in the future. By the way, I, from what I'm saying, I already prefer this kind of secret mission to anything having to do with Section 31. 
Like, if it's just a scientific secret, a discovery type thing, okay, fine, keep a thing secret. But this layer of subterfuge that undermines the actual work of Starfleet, I'm not on board with that. Okay, but at mm-hmm. the same time, given that those secrets may sometimes be necessary, and that Starfleet is, by all intents, a trustable institution, I guess what I'm asking is, should the crew just keep their mouth shut and follow orders? What do you think? Because I really had mixed feelings, and, and maybe it was me being too trusting. I trust Janeway. I trust Starfleet's intelligence about a thing. And if a message comes through that says, hey, this is secret for good reasons, this is secret, um, when the crew starts getting nosy about it, should Janeway have just shut it down early? And then even when Chakotay asks her, just say no. Or or mm. the need to know part of it is truly need to know. You've you've asked a, a lot of really complex questions here, John. And you know there's You're welcome. There's a well, I mean, there's like the two ways of looking at it. There's the in world universe explanation and the out of world universe explanation. The first thing that really kind of tips the hand at kind of like the, the strangeness and, and the way that this is approached in the episode is just kind of like this the plastering of the Omega symbol across like everyone's screens. It's already not secret. Yeah, exactly. For like the most top secret clandestine redacted truth of what happened, you know, with Cataract Mm -hmm. and that space station and the Omega molecule. I understand like why you have to do that for the production value of the show so that it, it brings the drama, it brings the interest, it brings the mystery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, though, it really does make Janeway's job harder to try and keep it contained. Because let's take a look at who's on the bridge at the time. You have Chakotay. Mm-hmm. Tuvok wasn't on the bridge. It was, uh, you know, his backup. Mm-hmm. Tom's on the bridge. Uh, Harry wasn't on the bridge, but Harry's like the biggest gossiper of all. So <laughs> yeah. it's really, yeah. really difficult to to try and contain that secret. And going back to like your your original point of this, which I think is. Why do we have this type of deep, dark, clandestine secrecy in mm-hmm. a human organization that's supposed to be beyond that? Yeah. Because I think that so far, like we have seen this evolution, like in Star Trek, where the more and more and more you introduce this into the actual fabric of the series, the more interesting that series is for people who are swayed by other series that are a bit more human in the drama aspect of the series. You know, your mm. other science fiction shows at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and and in this case, it would have been like, say, you know, well, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. For example. Right. You know, where Section 31 has become a huge part of the narrative drama. And for good reason, because it's it brings a different interest in the darkness of what's going on with Deep Space Nine's specific narrative underneath Ira Stephen Bear. So maybe the people in Voyager that were running the show, they were like. We need a little bit of that kind of swagger. You know, we need a little bit of that mm. kind of darkness to be able to give a little bit more texture, a little bit more depth, maybe, to like to Janeway. Yeah. But at the same time, though, it really does kind of undermine that more optimistic, more progressive humanity, more progressive Starfleet that we've seen, you know, as per why Voyager was created in the first place to get away from that. Right? And, and now don't get me wrong, because I, I think there is a difference. I, I think 
you know, part of what DS9 did with Section 31 is having this layer of uh, a clandestine organization within Starfleet, within the charter for 200 years. Like, that, that's always the right. part that bugged me and I know bugged you. That undermined the political decisions and the diplomatic decisions that characters made. So that that was a whole other problem. Like, I, I get the idea that, okay, there may be knowledge or technology that we don't want to fall into the wrong hands. So that is a different kind of secrecy applied to this. But I think the unveiling of that is a very bad Starfleet thing <laughs> because first of all, it is presented in this ridiculous way of yes, we're, we're splashing it all over every display that everybody can see. But second of all, like it doesn't give the captain any leeway when it comes to what are my best resources to take care of this problem. And mm -hmm. I, I see it as kind of an all or nothing decision no matter which way you go. It is either all or nothing that you don't tell the people around you what this is, and then that becomes a very interesting point of dramatic conflict between the crew and the captain, and you just have to trust the captain. And we've seen where maybe that's the right thing to do, or maybe that's the wrong thing to do. Or mm -hmm. you have to go all or nothing in the other direction, and the captain has to say, you know what? Everybody needs to know about this. Because everybody needs to know what we're facing. And, and I, I feel like this show, the way this was set up, they tried to have it both ways. And I'm not really satisfied that just Chakotay's impassioned speech about we're here to help you. That's not necessarily good enough to get a captain to break her vow about keeping this thing secret. And I'm sorry, but there's no such thing as just a little bit secret. Well, I'll only tell the senior staff. <laughs> Harry's in that room. Right. Harry's in You're that right. room. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think my biggest issue with how they handled it in this episode is that it's so antithetical Janeway, right? So Janeway, all of a sudden she gets the information about the Omega directive has been initiated and all of a sudden she goes into ahab mode like yeah, she's right. lost her she's lost her perspective throughout the course of this episode she's lost her scientific uh curiosity she's lost her moral compass everything is just this is my order i must destroy end of story and everyone in her wake has to follow and toe the line and i'm like well that's not the jane way that we know yeah Right. This isn't the Janeway that has been crafted over like, you know, the last, you know, three and a half, four seasons. Like Janeway is a very scientifically minded, methodical, very, you know, uh, she's she's an all encompassing type of mentality, type of intelligence where she looks at all of the things that are supposed to like impact not only her decision, but how it affects the crew and how it affects her ability to get home. And all of a sudden she's like, I don't care what your reasoning is. The Omega directive takes precedent over everything, even my own common sense. I'm like, no. That's not that rings false yeah. to me. That doesn't ring true to Janeway's character thus far. Yeah, no, I I agree you with know? that. Um, and, and by the way, Chicote, uh, dude, um, have you ever worked <laughs> in an office or anywhere in your life? Because uh, yeah, secrets like that they don't just stay secret. If you tell a handful of people, by the next morning, everybody, including the doctor is going to know every detail about all of this. It's but, called the Germac Directive. You know, you tell two friends, and they, they tell, tell two, two friends, friends, and so on, and so on, and so <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Uh, going back to Janeway's decision, yeah. I mean, I think there is a good argument to be made here 
about Voyager's unique situation. We're in the Delta Quadrant. There is no help from Starfleet anywhere. The best course of action is to tell everybody. Because as I wrote it in my notes, is a secret still a secret if there's nobody there to make it secret? (laughs) They're alone. There is no other Starfleet. Janeway could conceivably give an order to the rest of the crew to say, okay, you're going to keep this quiet when we get back, if we get back. But right now, we have to change this rule because there is no Starfleet here to back us up, and this is the most dangerous thing, conceivably, that we will encounter. So, yeah. I mean, that goes back to like what we were talking about with... Janeway's attitude towards maintaining the Starfleet morale and the Starfleet protocol in an area of space where Starfleet doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's its a matter of principle, right? Mm-hmm. So either yeah. you're going to hold up to those principles, you know, and associate yourself with the, you know, keeping the hierarchy of those principles alive within your crew or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, there's a consistency that needs to be maintained when it comes to your vision for this yeah. mission. Right. Um, and if you're not going to do it, then you're going to have a really principled way to do it. You're going to have a really, you know, and, and I'm not, I, look, I'm not saying that these ideas weren't explored in this episode. I think a lot of this stuff got lost in the complications of discussing the Omega Particle. <laughs> and I'm right. not sure that those scenes really connected or really explored the depths of these ideas like how serious is it if Janeway breaks this protocol how serious is it if she keeps this a secret I feel like there's more to mind there that we didn't really get because there are so many like big ideas here. yeah and something yeah. that I think that you and I really need to touch on here is the, the aspect of Borg spirituality yes, now we're talking right yeah okay so when Seven is comparing the Omega Particle to, quote-unquote, God, mm-hmm. do the Borg even understand that spiritual concept, right? The concept of belief, aside from their assimilated dictionary definition of uh-huh. it. As far uh-huh. as we know, belief is a, quote-unquote, individual choice. Mm-hmm. How would the Borg understand individual belief, right? Mm-hmm. Can the Borg have spiritual experiences? How does that fit in the the pursuit and assimilation of technology. I thought that based on Seven's description that the Borg discarded any information that was irrelevant if it did not further the goals of assimilating greater technology. Seven even said herself, I, I Uh have waited many years to see this molecule firsthand. I will not deny myself this experience. I, myself, yeah. not we or the collective. Yeah. Because she saw this molecule while the Borg, when she was part of the Borg. So where's this individual personal desire to see Omega? Well, I, right? I, yeah. Uh, carry on. Continue. Yeah, yeah, because she also said about Omega, not curiosity, desire. Yeah. Do Borg have desire? Don't they just unemotionally assimilate? Well, okay, you posed all these great questions. This absolutely, to me, is the heart of it. And this is the stuff that I was very interested in tracking in Seven's journey in this episode. First of all, I I thought it was interesting that she had this deep confidence in her theory about uh, being able to hold these uh, Omega particles in 
stasis. Um, and she was so dedicated to her belief that she could do this, almost honestly a little bit like uh, a parallel to the doctor's journey in retrospect, if I dare bring up that episode again, uh, just because he is so dedicated to this idea, but then finds that there is failure in that. Um, and Seven is so convinced of her own experiment and then has to deal with this surprise. Now, she gets the, the good part of it, that 3.2 seconds, but then the experiment ends and she has to say goodbye to that thing because probably it wasn't going to last anyway. But I'm very interested in this idea that we give the Borg something like a quote-unquote spiritual experience uh, because... However it gets framed, and this is where the, the words, the semantics can get really difficult, it is just an interesting conceit that there is something out there. there. There is something apart from themselves as a collective that give the Borg, maybe as a whole, maybe as individuals, because there are still individuals who were assimilated, to make the Borg, okay, it gives them that sense of awe and wonder about the universe. And I, I kept trying to think about how this happens. And, and you could say that it is maybe a vestige of whatever species first became the Borg and baked it into their own programming. Maybe it just happened. I mean, a machine is only as good as the people who made the machine. And maybe that original species had this sense of awe and wonder, had this sense of a thing that is out there and couldn't help it when they uploaded their neural pathways to the computers that became the Borg. Maybe that's just the way it turned out. Um, or maybe it is an emergent desire of the Borg based on their programming to always seek perfection. Maybe if you tell a multinodal computer system to seek perfection. Okay, well, maybe perfection is impossible. Therefore, it keeps looking for the thing that is out there that is not of themselves to go find it. Or, or let's go with a different uh, route here. Maybe it is the sum of a very human, or maybe not just human, just maybe more widely organic property of life forms to look out to the universe and wonder in the words of someone else famous, is there nothing more? So that could be there are beings like Seven, there are beings like all the other species that the Borg have assimilated, and if they looked out at the universe and wondered, is there nothing more, did that then become part of that programming? Because it couldn't help but becoming a part of that programming. If you'd like to hear more of our discussion, of which there are so many more notes that we didn't get to, please join us at patreon.com slash mission log for the uncut version of our discussion that goes into such other topics as Janeway, her poor leadership decisions in this episode, and why she plays Captain's second fiddle to Seven of Nine. If your control panel suddenly displays the Greek letter Pi, well, you know what Neelix is making for dessert.
We've made it to the end of the Omega Directive, or for some of our friends across the pond, the Omega Directive. We don't want to make we want to make sure that we you know, represent your needs as well. That's for you, Adam and Nick. We don't want anybody <laughs> to feel left out. And as we do here uh, at the end of every single mission log, uh, it's our directive to look at: uh, Does this episode hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? And then, did we find any morals or meanings or messages? contained therein perhaps in the 3.2 seconds of all of this episode you know crystallizing into that moment of perfect harmony yes or maybe not so john let's start with you let's see how did you feel about the omega directive <laughs> i'm not taking that back the omega directive yeah. and did you think this episode held up it's <sighs> Okay, <laughs> let me go back. <laughs> let, let me go back before I even start. Um, That's a deep breath. Yeah, okay. uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about the Killing Game, and I said ahead of time that it, it was an episode, a collection of episodes that I had watched before, really enjoyed it, really liked it, and then upon further study, when we do what we do for Mission Log, I just found that there were so many bizarre choices and kind of not necessarily plot holes, but but a a lot asking the audience to just sort of take on faith to accept the story and accept the character journey. And I felt a lot more lukewarm watching it. But then in the end, I just I couldn't help myself because I enjoyed it. And even if I could acknowledge that it was far from a perfect episode, I still enjoyed it. Then we arrive at the Omega Directive. And I remember watching this episode before and really liking it because I think I like the dual layers of a top secret dangerous thing versus the personal journey that our characters find themselves on. And I thought that was a, a, a good couple of layers to play. And then I rewatched this a few times for Mission Log and took a lot of notes as we do. And similar to The Killing Game, I came away thinking, okay, this is bonkers. <laughs> it's not quite bonkers in the same way that The Killing Game is bonkers, but there's still just an awful lot that you have to chew and swallow at the outset if you're going to go along with this story. There's the multiple levels of secrecy, just the very premise of the particle itself, uh, the representation of a kind of Borg spirituality, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But for the most part, I really respect a show that bites off more than it can chew. And this is an episode that does that. And just when we're getting lost in the details about science and secrecy, along come scenes that really put an emotional and thoughtful button on the characters. And I ask you, isn't that what sci-fi is all about? To let some humanity shine through, even with all the science and spaceships and other technical nonsense on display. So the Omega Directive doesn't hold up and then it kind of does hold up and i think it depends on your mood when you're watching it if you're trying to follow the logic of the story it is an exercise in frustration but if you're okay with letting most of that go and you just focus on where it takes our characters then i think there's something to be satisfied by in this episode it may not hold up as an individual story. And we've said this about a lot of Star Trek in the past here. But I think if you take all these character nuggets that have been dropped on us in the last several episodes, good or bad episodes, I think they become necessary to hold up 
because they really tell a complete story about the characters. So that is the way that I will have to justify the Omega Directive. How about you, Norman? I mean, I definitely have a response to to that last point that you're making about the entertainment value of the episode. I mean, for me, I'll have to be I have to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. You know, our audience deserves that. There's just too much happening in this episode for me to actually enjoy it as a whole. Too many notes. Thank you. (laughs) I was going to reference Amadeus. Yes, there there are too many notes. And I don't think that there was an a Mozart, you know, uh, back then saying, well, just tell me which notes to cut and I'll fix it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's it. Okay, again, for what you and I do, and this is a very special case, writing a podcast for Mission Log, where where we have a specific uh, goal here, I found myself just rewinding and rewatching with subtitles always so mm-hmm. many of these scenes going like, wait a minute, have we made up our minds yet about what this thing is and how much we care about it? Can we just, it became so frustrating. I just was like, okay, I I can't even begin to form an opinion about that anymore. I'm just going to care about seven of nine here. Well, I mean, I feel the same way. I think there are so many incredible ideas, you know, in this episode, but it's kind of like what we've said about, you know, several episodes of Voyager in the past. Pick one, yeah, maybe two, right? Yeah. I mean, in this episode, you have some of the biggest conceptual ideas, like with the Omega Molecule mm-hmm. and how it's Starfleet's fault and it's Starfleet's responsibility to clean up their mess. The Borg spirituality, you know, part of this equation, mm-hmm. right? Does Janeway have the right and authority to choose which priority Starfleet directive to enforce? I mean, if both can't be dealt with at the same time, then which one, yeah. you know, overrides her own moral compass? Yeah. You know, when she has to pick and choose which particular directive to decide with the prime directive or the omega directive. So this is a case where maybe this story becomes too ambitious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is where I think that maybe you and I have had uh, not just with this episode, but other episodes like this in the past where it's hard to like invest ourselves in which thread to care about most because there are so many. I mean, let's just kind of go through the list of the ones that at least I could pick out. You have the clandestine Omega Directive. Yeah. Then you have Janeway grappling with Seven over what is right or wrong about preserving Omega. Uh-huh. Then you give Seven the rights and authority over the crew and how they react to this unearned authority. Mm-hmm. Then you have Janeway's isolationist attitude to handle Omega or how she's going to. And how she kind of like lost all sense of reason or logic when it came to handling the Omega Directive. I mean, as yeah, soon as that thing, yeah. as soon as that like symbol came on screen, it's like you saw a completely different Janeway, right? Yeah. So those are things that it, it, there are so many things that you just have to try and find a way to settle, you know, into like the logic and world building of what we've seen so far. Now, to be fair, there's a lot of really good entertainment value in this episode. Mm-hmm. But there are also a lot of logic-defying narrative <laughs> details that, again, throughout the course of the episode, make me ask more questions than finding answers to that continue to break the world-building of where we are in the narrative so far. So to answer your question about, you know, is entertainment, you know, kind of like the end result mm-hmm. of, you know, what we should be watching – Maybe, and I know that there are a lot of people out there, and especially there are a lot of people in in our in our um, beloved Discord group that have pushed back on me, and and challenged me, saying in so many words, "Relax and just enjoy it, Norm, for what it is." 
and and maybe perhaps I should. But, you know, for what you and I do, John, I think there's also a responsibility that we have for our audience and to ourselves to at least discuss and critique what is and what isn't quality storytelling. And regardless of how interesting all of these individual ideas and concepts were in this episode, at least for me, the whole does not equal the sum of its parts. Yeah. And and I think that's the fairest way for me to say it. I think, yeah, I think that is absolutely fair. Any one of these story ideas are introduced. I mean, it it just brought it up for a moment, the whole Einstein with the atomic bomb and Carol Marcus with Genesis, the idea of a source of power being a weapon. That's kind of low-hanging fruit for uh, Star Trek to deal with a scientific conundrum like that. But you can certainly build an episode around it. And I, I think, again, Janeway's being pulled one way or the other about secrecy, given that they're out in the Delta Quadrant. That is another great story thread to follow. There was a lot bitten off here, and it may just be too much to do in a 45-minute uh, episode. But let's talk about morals, meanings, messages, because I, I just want to focus on one little slice of this, um, because we don't really follow that story about the energy source as a weapon or about the true nature and pros and cons of dealing with secrecy, given that you also need cooperation and buy-in from your crew, and this gets into leadership styles, et cetera, et cetera. I do want to focus on the religious slash spiritual aspect of what's happening with Seven of Nine, because if this episode has a heart, that is it. I like the idea of using an alien belief, something that is felt very strongly as a metaphor for our own. And I like being able to put this in our newest alien character, given that she is part human, part Borg at this point, has had a very unique experience. And it just sort of made me take a step back and kind of take the 30,000-foot view over what, what is the purpose of of her experience because we talked in the last segment about why would the Borg feel this? Why would the Borg pursue this? And there could be any number of maybe in-universe reasons that it happens, but the fact is that in-universe it is happening. And globally, universally, we can think of religion as a way of explaining the universe or explaining the unexplainable. And it's a way to bring story and metaphor and order to these abstract ideas like one's place and one's purpose or the very concept of perfection, something that is unobtainable. So I like that Seven of Nine is very similar to V'ger, as I referenced before, in this very story. And in the way that we use Star Trek as metaphor for our own experiences, she gets to have a moment of awe and wonder. Now, as someone personally who doesn't ascribe to supernatural explanations to that kind of experience, let me just say, though, that those moments of awe and wonder are indeed precious, no matter what you believe or don't believe. I love I, I love what you found, and I wish I could have found something just as profound. Um, <laughs> but I actually found more of a concern in general. Oh, okay. After yeah. this episode, but this episode was, it was kind of like the catalyst for me wanting to address something as a overall concern mm-hmm. for myself as a viewer, and, and maybe for some others out there. Yeah. John, would you like to role play this scene with me? Oh, I, I love it, love it. Yeah, anytime. Would you like to be Harry or Seven? I think it'll be Seven. 
So this is the scene in the hallway, and it's the beginning of the episode, and I think it sets an incredible tone for what I'm going to bring up next. Okay. So Harry says to Seven, is there anything you don't know? I was Borg. I was Borg. That's what you always say. But what does it mean? You've got the knowledge of 10,000 species in your head? Not exactly. Each drone's experiences are processed by the collective. Only useful information is retained. Still, that probably makes you the most intelligent human being alive. Probably. So, what do you need the rest of us for? Forget I asked. So, my takeaways from this conversation actually echo what Harry is asking, but in a more real-world application. Number one. I was Borg. Like Harry, I asked, what does that mean? Right? Mm -hmm. But more for what does this mean for the story? Because if Seven has the relevant information and experience over 10,000 species, and at least as of this episode can summon any or all of that experience in order to complete any assignment, no matter how difficult, then to Harry's next point, so what do you need the rest of us for? Again, this is the same question I'm asking when it comes to the obvious and somewhat imbalanced focus that the writers have put on Seven as a character. Mm -hmm. When you give a character superhuman abilities and prove time and again that this character is literally superior in every possible way to your already established characters, human or alien, then where does that leave those characters and their development? If their struggle or their ability to overcome problems using their grit and their determination then what happens to our interest in their development? More importantly, what happens when the writer's interest in crafting interesting stories for those characters when you can default saving the day to the savior character, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So this brings me to probably my two favorite quotes from Gene Roddenberry in contrast to these critiques. Okay, Gene said in this first quote, it is the struggle itself that is most important. We must strive to be more than what we are. It does not matter that we will not reach our ultimate goal. The effort itself yields its own reward. Hmm. And I'd like to follow that up with probably my favorite quote of his. (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) Right? Ancient astronauts didn't build the pyramids. Human beings built the pyramids because they're clever and they work hard. So my concerns boil down to this. If we take away the agency of our already established characters as I feel that is happening in this season four Voyager, then why will I care about them as much as I did in seasons one through three, or more importantly, in the futures of seasons five through seven? Mm. For the record, I love Seven of Nine as the character and what Jerry Ryan has brought to the series. But I'm also disappointed that her character development so far has been at the sake of leaving already established characters behind. And I'm not sure if a good balance will be struck in the upcoming seasons. And I truly, sincerely hope I'm wrong. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log... Unforgettable. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, 
Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shadwell, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. As soon as this system receives its next Starfleet upgrade, full-screen emojis will be displayed instead of letters. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.